Our text this morning will be from 2 Corinthians. Um, we're turning to a, what's really a highly theological section um, of 2 Corinthians, and, and not to say that what has come before has not been. It, it, it has been, but this is especially so. Well, as we come to 2 Corinthians, we're, we're coming to the end of chapter 5. Um, Paul has previously discussed his motivation uh, for his ministry. He's talked about that which has really controlled him. And, and in the, very, um, uh, the section that comes right before this one, um, he talks about how part of what has just um, uh, impels him forward is a, a fear of the Lord. And, and in the context, it's this recognition that one day Christ is going to return. <laughs> And we're all going to have to stand before the great king and be held to account. Um, and that recognition is in part what he just kept on the, the front part of his, his brain, and, and, and it motivated him. And then the second thing that he talks about that really motivated him is what Christ did for him. Um, he recognized that the great love, this immense, um, uh, uh, unsearchable love of Christ demonstrated through his life and, and especially his suffering and death on the cross. Um, and, and the apostle says that a love, is, is, it captures your imagination and it, it has this kind of controlling influence in his life. And so that leads into this passage that we're, we're um, coming to now. Is he, he talks now, he, um, uh, he, he's affirming again in the context of those who were undermining his ministry. He's, he's letting us um, kind of understand um, the, the nature as he sees it of his calling. And by extension, this is the calling of the church. This is the calling of all believers by extension. So he, this is where he's going to talk about uh, the ministry of reconciliation. And, and, uh, and, and so this passage breaks down into three parts. So With that in mind, would you stand for the reading and hearing of the word of God? This is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 16 through 21. Paul writes, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. And therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God for our sake. He made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Again, would you pray with me? Lord, we know that we are not to live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. Lord, be gracious to us. Grant that we might be spiritually nourished and strengthened by your word according to your great mercy, which we have found in Jesus, in whose name we ask it. Amen. You may be seated. 
This passage divides into three parts. And in this first part, the apostle describes how his thinking and perspective concerning Jesus and how his perspective just concerning people in general has radically changed. It's been radically changed. And he tells us that the reason for this transformative change is that he, along with all believers, is a new creation. Okay, So he's He's recounting, um, in some ways, this is testimonial, but he's also, um, what he's saying about himself is also true of all believers to some degree, especially those who come to faith, um, you know, as young adults, um, uh, maybe older teenagers, and so forth, uh, or as adults. And he begins this section um, in verse 16, where he, 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 in some ways, talks about his own transformation. Verse 16, Um, There he tells us that we regard no one according to the flesh. We regard no one according to the flesh. This is part of the change that has taken place in the apostle's life. And, And when Paul talks about viewing people according to the flesh, well, this is a way of saying, you know, I used to view people the way the world um, uh, taught me to view people. You can imagine as a good Jew how he divided the world into two basic categories. He saw Jew and he saw Gentile. And when he looked at the Gentiles, he probably looked at them and and, and thought of them as, in some ways, those who lived ignorant, immoral, unclean, pagan lives. And um, he probably, you know, so that was kind of this Jewish background, but just the world systems have always elevated the outward... um, Uh, aspects of humankind. Um, Things like your status, things like your your attractiveness, things like your uh, wealth, uh, your position, your achievements, these kinds of outward um, markers of status. He says, I used to regard people this way. And then something took place. and, and similarly, he says uh, he once regarded Christ according to the flesh, but he says we regard him thus no longer. Again, as a good Jew, trained as a Pharisee, how did Paul or how would Paul have seen Jesus? Likely his worldly assessment of Jesus was that he was a mere man. He was a pretender. He was a false messiah. And he probably would grant that Jesus was a skilled communicator, but ultimately a liar. And this was proven, at least in you know, the Jewish mind, by the way Jesus died. The Old Testament declares that anyone who dies on a tree is cursed um, of God. Well, the, the cross, this, the wooden cross, was viewed as a kind of tree. And so from a Jewish mentality, it just conf- the, the, Jesus' death on, on the cross confirmed that, in fact, he was a liar, he was a pretender, he was false, and therefore he dies uh, under the curse of God. This is, Paul said, this was my mindset. And here I am as an apostle of Jesus Christ, and I have done a 180. My outlook, my perspective... And it would go well beyond just how he views people. Um, Now he would view, rather than viewing people in worldly terms, he now views um, all people in in similar terms as sinners. 
in need of redeeming, in need of a savior. Um, and indeed, the irony is he's called to the Gentiles, uh, perhaps the very people, you know, he had this difficulty, uh, at least in terms of perspective. In Acts 26, with regard to his view of Christ, just listen to, um, this is where Paul gives a little testimony. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. This was the Apostle Paul's previous outlook, which he describes here as according to the flesh, according to, you know, the worldly standards, which he was raised within. But something took place, something that, that forever changed uh, the Apostle Paul. And he describes the nature of this transformative change in verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he just says it this way, he or she, is a new creation. And he further explains, the old has passed away, the new has come. And again, in the context of what he's just said, you can see he's just giving a personal little testimony, his own personal example of what this means, this this transformative effect um, that can only be explained um, uh, by the work and power of Jesus Christ. In the case of the Apostle Paul, it had a lot to do with his journey to Damascus. Uh, while on that Damascus road, the, 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 the glorified Jesus appears to him in this blinding light. Um, and, and though the others around him did not see it, the Apostle is blinded. They heard the sound uh, of the voice, but they, they did not see uh, the, the glorified Christ in the way that Paul did. But This changed him. The change in attitude is explained by a spiritual recreation that took place inside of the apostle. And it's a change that he says in verse 17. He's not just saying this is true of him. He says, if anyone is in Christ, he's saying this is true of everybody who is uh, uh, that terminology of in Christ, who is in uh, this kind of vital relationship with Christ. It's those who have placed their faith in Christ, who've who've trusted him. Um, And the result of this is that all the benefits that Jesus has achieved by his sinless life and his death on the cross, um, all of these benefits now belong to those who are in Christ. But it all begins with this creation, this recreation event that takes place in in the lives of believers, of those who are in Christ. To be a new creation is to have been brought to new spiritual life. And the New Testament elsewhere tells us that this is a work of the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians, we read, but God, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive. That's the language of being made new, this being recreated. Um, We were made us alive together with Christ. This transformation caused by the Holy Spirit affects a radical and permanent change at the time of or before our conversion. 
For those brought to new life by the Spirit, in one sense, everything changes. But in another sense, it's the beginning of this lifelong process. So we describe this process of becoming more like Jesus with the the terms progressive sanctification. Sanctification is the process of becoming more like Jesus, of becoming uh, holy, (laughs) becoming who God wants us to be. It's this spiritual reprogramming that takes place over time. And um, it's progressive because it is over time. We're we're not made, um, uh, uh, and we never will be in this life, but we're not made perfectly holy at the moment we are recreated. This starts this, this process of sanctification that continues to the end of our lives. And having been made a new creation by God, Paul continues to discuss his calling and the calling of the church as a ministry of reconciliation through which God has reconciled us to himself. Verse 18, the the apostle writes, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So this is the second part of this passage. The first part, this transforming recreation that that changed everything for the Apostle Paul. And now he's talking about the calling that the Lord has placed on him, this calling he describes as a ministry of reconciliation. And, you know, so this is interesting because there probably are a lot of ways that the Apostle could have described his calling. You know, I don't know that God said, okay, here's the written call. (laughs) You are called, you know, Paul, to to be a minister of reconciliation. No, there are a lot of ways, perhaps, that the apostle could have understood his role. He might have understood it as being an agent for positive cultural change. That's not how he describes his calling. He might have described it as, you know, um, uh, getting in, um, uh, as, as equipping, uh, a ministry of equipping um, individuals to live life more successfully. And though he probably wanted to see this happen, certainly wasn't adverse to that, that's not how he characterizes his work or the work of the church. Instead, Paul describes his calling and a calling again shared by um, all churches as a ministry of reconciliation. You could describe this as a ministry of evangelism. This is a ministry of proclamation, proclaiming the good news regarding Jesus Christ. And to reconcile is to reunite two parties that are formally alienated uh, uh, from one another. Paul's great desire was especially to unite people to God and to one another through faith in Jesus Christ. What is the message? Well, it's verse 19. Verse 19, Paul writes, That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. What is this message of reconciliation? I I like how John MacArthur um, kind of just describes this. He says, The glorious good news of the gospel 
is that the sin-devastated relationship between lost sinners and a holy God can be restored. That at first glance seems impossible, MacArthur writes. God's perfect, infinite, righteous justice demands the punishment of all who violate his law. Standing before the bar of his justice are helpless, guilty sinners, unable either to satisfy God or to change their condition. But through God's plan of reconciliation, all the hostility, animosity, and alienation separating the Holy One and sinners vanishes, and those who were once his enemies become his friends. The high calling and noble privilege of preaching this message of reconciliation is the most important duty in the world since it deals with eternal destinations. It's both a message, and MacArthur says it's the most important duty uh, in the world. At the heart of this message of reconciliation is the problem of sin. That's our problem. We keep losing sight. This is the problem that runs through the veins, that runs through the heart of every living person. We all want to say we're in the right, you know, we've got the high ground. And we're all like, you know, judging other people for not seeing it, for not, you know, being enlightened to some degree. And what the Bible says is nobody has the high ground. We're all sinners in need of redeeming alike. There's no room for pride here. The good news is that God has made a way for not counting our sins or trespasses against us. And this is a way of saying that our need is for forgiveness. And this this, uh, need for forgiveness is provided for us in the gospel, in the message of reconciliation. And the upshot of this is that Paul sees himself as an ambassador, as all Christians, to some degree, must view themselves. We are ambassadors of God, sent by God. What do ambassadors do? Well, they're sent by a higher authority to represent them and to speak their words. They're not called to speak their own words. They're not, you know, just sharing their own thoughts and ideas of how things ought to go. They are ambassadors. They're given a message that they are to proclaim to others. And so, with the heart of an evangelist, Paul does not let the opportunity pass to challenge his own readers right at the end of verse 20. He says, we implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. You know, he, it is a temptation, I think, for preachers to make an assumption. The assumption is you're speaking to a room full of Christian believers. Paul does not make that assumption, even as he's writing to a church. Be reconciled, he says. He implores uh, the, the Corinthian uh, 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 readers. And this leads to the third part of this passage, and that is the foundation, the the basis for the forgiveness and the righteousness we need in order to be reconciled to God. 
Paul describes a transaction, what, what I refer to in your outline as the great exchange, this transaction that took place when Christ died and when we place our faith in him. Paul has just argued that he has been given a ministry and a message of reconciliation. It is possible for sinful humankind to be reconciled to a holy God. But this raises some difficult questions that we shouldn't run by too quickly. How can a God whose nature requires perfect justice to be accomplished simply allow our sins, which in his view are like crimes, serious crimes, Um, how can he allow our crimes to just go unpunished? Does this not make God unjust? And so how can God offer full forgiveness and eternal life to those who have broken both the laws of God and man, often doing incalculable damage and hurt to others? If God allows criminals to go unpunished, is he really just? And this creates the horns of the dilemma on on which the gospel comes forth. How can God, on one hand, he loves the world. He wants to gather people out of the world for his own. He wants to just display the, the immensity of his love. But how can he do that and still save, still not be safe from the charge of being unjust? How can he do this? Well, this is where Paul then leads into verse 21. This is where the answer is. For our sake, Paul writes, he, that is God the Father, made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There's a lot to unpack here. First of all, for our sake, there you see the heart of God right away. It was out of a concern for our well-being that he begins to announce the basis of our redemption, the basis of our forgiveness and reconciliation with God. For our sake, that is out of a great and deep concern for our well-being, both in the present life and the life to come, this is because of God's amazing, unfathomable love for us. And then we come to this word about sin. The one who knew no sin was made to be sin. The one who knew no sin. What does that mean? What do we teach? We teach that Jesus of Nazareth, was both God and man, fully man, and that he lived a life unlike any other human being. We declare, the New Testament declares, that though he was tempted in every way, like we are, he was nevertheless without sin. In every manner, he fully obeyed the law of God, In John 14, um, Jesus, talking to his disciples, says, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do. It's like, and, and that but could be like, because I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I 
love the Father. Now, this is a love that none of us possess because in the context, that love is a love that's characterized by perfect obedience. And this is confirmed um, in John 8, uh, verse 29, when Jesus says, and he, God the Father, who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone. Why? For I always do the things that are pleasing to him. It is critical that we understand that Jesus led a sinless life. And though Jesus knew no sin, he led a sinless life. There's nothing worthy of condemnation, um, either before God or man in the life of Christ. Nevertheless, he was made, he made him, God the Father made Jesus to be sin. This is one of those, you know, we, we just read over them. We pass over this so quickly. What does it mean that God made Jesus to be sin? Well, this is where that language of what the theologians refer to as imputation. And in this case, what we actually see is double imputation. But imputation is an accounting term. It's a, it's a term by which we can, um, the old King James uses the, the, the terminology of reckoning something to someone else. This is to credit um, something. And so th- this language of imputation is, is that the sins uh, of humanity for whom Jesus died was placed, was credited in some sense to the account of Jesus. So even though he personally was sinless, he can nevertheless die as a substitute. He can die in our place and pay for our sins. Now consider this just for a moment, what this means. Not just the sins of an individual, but the sins of all those, from people of every tribe and tongue and nation. Oh, a man who knew no sin suddenly has the weight of sin placed upon his shoulders. And the result of this is that when he dies on the cross, we hear these words of complete dereliction. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? In some sense, God the Father, with whom, because of his sinless life, he enjoyed perfect fellowship suddenly turns his back. Suddenly, he is abandoned. In some mysterious way, he falls under not just the abandonment, but the condemnation and the wrath of a perfectly holy God, his own father. We cannot imagine how terrible this would have been. This is the idea of substitution. Christ died on the cross in our place to pay for our sins. See, this is the thing that Paul, as a, you know, as a Pharisee, did not understand. He only saw Christ dying on the cross for his own sins. It was Christ, because he did something wrong, who was cursed. But in fact, that was not the case. And it was, Jesus was ultimately vindicated. And this is partly why the resurrection is so important because the resurrection serves as a divine vindication that Jesus, in fact, did not die. He was not guilty, but rather he was actually innocent. 
This is what uh, the prophet Isaiah predicts. When he describes the coming suffering servant with these words in Isaiah 53, 5 and 6, but he, this future suffering servant, was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, think of the whipping, uh, the suffering that he endures. By his stripes, we are healed. Now that healing is just a metaphor for being forgiven. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. On the one hand, Christ dies in our place as our sins are credited or imputed to him. But in return, there's another imputation that takes place. He is credited with our sins. And because he dies to pay perfectly uh, the the, the penalty, the punishment of our sins, well, there's another uh, part of this transaction. So that in him, in Christ, we, those who believe, might become the righteousness of God. This is the second part of imputation because, of course, (laughs) if you look at any of our lives, (laughs) no one's going to say, oh, there is a perfectly righteous person. When you unpeel, you know, and look into a person's heart, (laughs) when you see how they navigate a day and and the thoughts and the, the emotions that flow through, We know none of us are perfectly righteous. And nevertheless, we somehow gain not just forgiveness, but the perfect righteousness we need in order to stand before a perfectly holy and just God. Well, how does this happen? Well, because when we place our faith in him, the righteousness of God is credited to us so that in him, when we are placed in Christ, we become, okay? It's not like we're actually perfectly righteous, of course, but this is the language of imputation, that it is credited to us so that in God's sight, he no longer sees us in our sin, but he sees us clothed in the perfect righteousness of Jesus. Well, let me just summarize it this way. This passage breaks down to three parts. First, the apostle has been transformed by God, and so he looks at both people in Christ with a new and different perspective. Second, the apostle describes his primary calling, and this is also the primary calling of the church, as a ministry of reconciliation, which means evangelism and discipleship. These go together. That's at the heart of his ministry. And third, regarding the core message he is called to proclaim, we have been reconciled by God or to God by having our sins taken away through the substitutionary offering of Jesus on the cross. Our sins are credited to him and paid for by his death so that the perfect righteousness of God can be credited to us. And through this transaction, the Lord is, in fact, the perfectly just one, who also is able to justify, to declare righteous those who were our sinners. And then there's a second thought, and that is just coming back to this plea of the Apostle Paul. There really is no greater issue 
then where you, where I will spend all eternity. Either a person, either you, will spend eternity banished from the presence of God in hell, or you will spend eternity in the presence of Christ with all the saints in a restored, renewed earth. And the, the, the thing that de- determines which, uh, which path we will take is whether we have been reconciled, whether we have truly placed our trust and our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so like the Apostle Paul, I urge you, be reconciled to God. Well, let's pray. Our God and our Father, we thank you again just for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the message of hope, the message of Jesus, the good news, the gospel of reconciliation. And Lord, we pray that we would appreciate, that we would walk in the news that our sins have been fully paid for, and that we walk and that we are clothed with the perfect righteousness of Jesus. And so, Lord, may we, in appreciation, be bold in coming into your presence with joy like a, a, a daughter or a son. And so, Lord, we pray for your blessing and for your spirit, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.